time for our children's message. So if you're a kid, I want you to come up here and have a seat with me up here. Good to see you guys. Come on, you can be the first one. It's okay. They're coming. All right, if you're visiting with us and you brought kids, we do a little message for them so you can send them up here. All right. Do you guys want to like maybe come over? It hurts my neck to look way over in that direction the whole time. Perfect. Are you guys having a good day today? Have you guys ever maybe gone on a hike or a walk where somebody sort of guided you on that hike or walk? Did you ever go somewhere where they were, hey, come on up, buddy. Where, did you ever go somewhere where you had a tour guide that sort of showed you where to go so you didn't get lost? Where did you go? Does anyone want to tell me? Where did you go with the tour guide? Everglades. The Everglades. Yeah, you don't want to get lost in the Everglades. That's not a great place to go without a guide, that's for sure. Anybody else go somewhere on a tour? Yeah? Safari. On a safari. That's pretty awesome. You definitely don't want to get lost on a safari. You might be somebody's lunch, right? Yeah? Okay. Anybody else? I had this amazing time a while back, a few years ago, like when you guys were tiny babies, um, and I had more hair and it wasn't gray. Um, I had a chance to go over and visit Israel and I got to go to actually um, a lot of places, but I went to the city of Jerusalem, which is what we're going to talk about today in my message. And while I was in Jerusalem, the city and the place we went to this market was so full of people um, that the, we were in a long train. I was with about 20 people, and the tour guide was in the front. He was like the, you know, the steam engine. And we were going to go through this market. And before we went to the market, he said, all right, here's the deal. We're about to go in this market. It's full of thousands of people, and they're everywhere, shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip. You had to kind of worm your way through, and, and he said, you need to stay as close to each other as possible, and even if you need to, grab you know, the person's shirt uh, or their belt loop behind, in front of you so that you don't get lost because there were so many people. And so I remember going into that place, and there was a crowd there, and it was loud, and people were talking and moving around. And so we just moved through that crowd, and we were very, very careful to follow our guide because he was going to take us to the other side and then to see a few other things. You know, Jesus is our guide. Did you know that? He's our guide through life. And what we're going to talk about today is that Jesus wants us to follow him. Can you guys say follow him? Follow him. Right? So Jesus says something very interesting in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He says, basically, if any of you want to follow me, you've got to do three things. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That's what Jesus says. So we need to deny the things we want to do. We need to pick up our cross or be obedient to the Lord and his word, and then we need to follow him wherever he tells us to go, all right? So as believers, who do we follow? Jesus, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The word of the day is follow. Thank you guys for coming up here. You can go sit down. All right, church, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's word with me this morning. Open it up to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 21, Acts chapter 21. So we've followed the Apostle Paul at the closing of his third missionary journey. 
And as Paul followed the Lord up into Asia and other parts of the Mediterranean, sharing the gospel, the Lord, he knew through the Holy Spirit, was leading him to go back to Jerusalem. Now what Paul knew about this calling on his life was when he went back into Jerusalem that he would be welcomed with conflict, he would ultimately be arrested and placed in chains. In fact, you probably remember a few weeks ago when we learned the prophet Agabus, a believer, came from Jerusalem and met Paul in Caesarea, uh, where Paul was staying, about 64 miles away from Jerusalem, and told him, this is a word from the Lord for you, Paul. You will be bound in chains and arrested. And so as Paul heard this news from Agabus, the prophet, um, all the believers there begged Paul not to go to Jerusalem because of what was going to happen to him. And Paul's response to them is something quite interesting. You see in Acts chapter 21, verse 13, Paul said this, For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of Jesus. And so now we're going to catch up with Paul in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 13, as he leaves Caesarea and enters into Jerusalem with the knowledge that he would soon be arrested and lose his freedom. Paul's answer to that was pretty amazing. I'm ready to die for Christ, he said. And I'm going to go to Jerusalem because that's what God has called me to do. Now, as I read over the message today, and I thought about Paul's comments about being ready to follow Jesus wherever he led him, my heart was confronted. I was convicted with one singular question. Am I ready to live and to die for Jesus? Am I ready to literally die for Jesus? Now, thank the Lord, we live in the United States of America. Our armed forces provide us with freedom to worship God freely. The doors out front are open and unlocked. And all of y'all came in here. You may have invite, invited people this week. People probably know that you come here and go to church. And we do that without fear of persecution or arrest. Now, praise God for that. Amen? Yeah. So, most of you probably won't be called upon by the Lord to die for Christ and for the witness. You might be. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to die for Christ? Now, what's going to happen is you're going to leave this place and go home and have a great lunch or go out to dinner. You're going to go to bed. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning and get ready to go to work or do whatever you do on Monday mornings. And a more, perhaps more pertinent question for you is, are you ready to live for Christ? Are you ready to die to yourself the way that Scripture commands us to do so and to live for Christ? And that's the question I want you just to ponder in your mind, in your hearts today. Because Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. What we're going to see first as Paul goes into Jerusalem is that God extends, equips, 
and empowers your ministry. God extends, equips, and empowers your ministry. Look at verse 15 with me of Acts chapter 21. After this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. Remember the place where Paul was called by God to go, that he was promised where he would be persecuted and arrested, and still went. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also went with us and brought us to Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to stay. So Paul leaves Caesarea, and he's got like this entourage of people with him. First of all, he's got Luke, the author of the book of Acts. He has other believers that he sort of gathered with him as he traveled throughout Asia and the Mediterranean who represented these churches who gave an offering to Paul so he could take it to Jerusalem to the people and the believers of Jerusalem who were suffering under an intense um, uh, issue there uh, because of not being able to grow crops. So Paul has his entourage, and, and they're headed to Jerusalem, about 64 miles away. Probably they packed everything on pack animals, and they're all moving from Caesarea up in elevation to the city of Jerusalem so that they can both share what's happened among the Gentiles as well as give this amazing offering to the Jerusalem believers. Verse 17 continues. When we reached Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters welcomed us warmly. So Paul receives this hero's welcome among the Jerusalem believers. First, uh, no doubt, because he brought this offering that they needed quite a bit because of the famine. Second, he came with stories, with a testimony about what God had done through their ministry among the Gentiles. And so first they go to the believers. They're welcomed with open arms in Jerusalem. Verse 18 continues. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through this ministry. When they heard it, they glorified God. So Paul and his entourage, they spend the first time, first uh, evening there with the Jerusalem believers. Then there's sort of this official meeting uh, with the elders or the pastors of the Jerusalem church. Now you notice that sort of the speaker, uh, the head of that church at that time is James. This is James, the brother of Jesus. You'll find the apostles are no longer mentioned in the book of Acts. Now what we believe from extra-biblical literature is the apostles had left Jerusalem and gone out to do exactly what Paul did. They had gone out to share the gospel with the world so people could hear it and be saved. Now what was left behind, the apostles had trained elders or pastors to lead the Jerusalem church. What we're going to learn later in this text is since Paul had last left the Jerusalem church to go on his next missionary journey, tens of thousands of people had repented of sin and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so, tens of thousands of people had been saved, and thus you had tens of thousands of people as a part of the Jerusalem church. Right? And so you have tens of thousands of new believers. Who do you need to guide new believers? Pastors. The word elder there is the same word we use today for pastor. And so Paul goes in to meet with James, sort of the speaker for the pastors of the Jerusalem church, along with all the pastors. And so Paul is meeting with them. 
Well, the text there that Luke mentioned to us is they came to share the testimony or the story about what God had done through Paul. Remember, it's not what Paul had done, right, while on the missionary journeys. It's what Paul had done, or what God had done through Paul. Well, what exactly had Paul accomplished through the ministry of the Holy Spirit? God used Paul as a catalyst among the Jews to both welcome now Gentiles into the church. You see, before, they thought Jesus came to save the Jews and, and, and maybe a few people who were God-fearers. But that's not the case at all. Jesus had come to seek and save that which was lost, both Jew and Gentile, and Paul was the one who bridged the gap. He was the bridge that brought the Gentiles into the church because that was the will of the Lord. God had sent Paul on three missionary journeys to share the gospel with those who had not yet heard it. Paul engaged in missionary activity in places like Syria, Sicilia, Cyprus, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, North Galatia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. He had disciples and made leaders such as Silvanus or Silas and Timothy. And all the while, Paul tirelessly prayed for people he led to Jesus and wrote to them often so that they could grow in their faith. In fact, many of Paul's letters to the new believers and the churches became part of the New Testament. Do you realize that Paul wrote 13 or 14 of the 27 New Testament books, or 31% of the New Testament was written by the Apostle Paul, all the while serving as a bivocational missionary who suffered intense persecution, such as being arrested, stoned, beaten, whipped, and left at sea to die. Tens of thousands of people were saved directly as a result of Paul's teaching and preaching ministry among the Gentiles by the time he comes back to Jerusalem. Imagine, just imagine, sitting in that room, listening to Paul's testimony about salvation and healing, about God saving them from persecution his testimony among the Jerusalem believers, or leaders, drove them to give glory to God for the way that he used Paul to take the gospel out to the Gentiles so they could hear and believe. You see, God used Paul to carry out a mighty mission among the Gentile people. And what God used Paul to do is really characterized by three things that I want to share with you this morning. The first thing is, God extended the call for Paul to serve as a missionary to the Gentiles. God is the one who reached out to Paul and gave him that calling. He's the one who gave Paul the mission. God also equipped Paul to carry out the mission and gave him the tools he needed to fulfill it. Now specifically, think of the pre-conversion that Paul received, pre-conversion training that Paul received as a Jew. He was well known as being a teacher of teachers among the Jews. He knew his Old Testament. He had teammates like Luke and Barnabas and Silas. He was well equipped to do what God asked him to do among the Gentiles. Finally, God not only extended equipped Paul, he also empowered Paul 
to do it. He had the indwelling Holy Spirit. And God gave Paul an enormous amount of faith to fulfill the mission. Think of, as we've worked through over the past few months, the book of Acts. Think of the number of times when Paul stared right into the jaws of death. Think of the numerous times he was drugged outside of cities and beaten and stoned and arrested and threatened with death. Think of all of those times and, and think how Paul stood for Christ. Many times he stood for Christ on his knees with his back bent over in pain. He was empowered by God to do the mission. You know, it's interesting. All of us can be used like Paul. Did you know that? Every single one of you believers can be used by God the same way he used Paul. Let me tell you how. First of all, God extends a calling upon your life just like he extended a calling upon Paul's life. The first general calling upon the life of every believer is the Great Commission. For us to go out from this place out into that world and proclaim the gospel. To baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything that Christ commanded to us. And trusting in Him that He'll never leave us. And that He'll return and take us home. You've been given this great commission. Every single born-again believer is left on this planet by Jesus to do that mission. Now on top of that, at times in your life, God's going to give you specific callings. He's going to extend a calling upon your life to teach a Sunday school class or to serve as an usher in a church or to maybe perhaps find that family, friend, loved one, neighbor, coworker, and tell them about the love that God has for them through Christ. Everyone is given the extended call upon their life by Jesus. Now, he doesn't just extend the call and walk away. He also equips you to serve. Did you know that? Did you know that God, upon salvation, provides through the ministry of the Holy Spirit spiritual gifts unique to you? And that God desires to use you in supernatural and miraculous ways to proclaim the gospel and to teach it to his church? Did you know that? Now, where on earth am I going to learn, maybe you're asking today, about these spiritual gifts? Where on earth am I going to be trained and discipled to be able to be used by God in amazing ways? Where on earth does that happen? Right here. Right in this church, Fifth Street Baptist Church. If you stumbled in here today, and this is your first time, and now you're like, I want to be equipped to be used by God in amazing ways, well, I've got good news for you. You're in the right place, because that's what we do here. We make disciples who make disciples for Jesus. We've got training that happens on Sunday mornings in Sunday school at 945. We have Fifth Street University, which is our leader development pipeline. We've got a way to disciple you, to show you how God's uniquely gifted you to serve in his church. And we're ready, we are equipped and ready to show you how that works so that you can be used by God in amazing ways. Now finally... God also empowers you to do the mission. Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, you are given supernatural strength, faith, and boldness. It's all a part of the mission. 
So as Paul stood in front of James and the other pastors of the Jerusalem church and told them about everything that God has done, we read about that and we wonder, I wonder how God wants to use me. I wonder if God can use me. You don't know me. I've got a past. Maybe that's what you're saying. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the mistakes I've made. We serve a God of new starts, a God of new beginnings. We serve a God of second chances. Anybody ever need a second chance? That God calls you through Christ and wipes away every sin. He sends His Holy Spirit to dwell within you. He extends the call. He equips you to serve. And He empowers you to fulfill the mission. Our God of second chances is calling you to serve in His church and for His kingdom. Will you submit to the call? Paul did. Paul's faith would be tested, however, once again as he meets with the Jerusalem pastors. He's going to be called upon to take a step of humility to keep the peace within the church. Let's look at the text, verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified God and said, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who have believed, and they are zealots for the law. But they have been informed about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. So what is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. So after Paul and the missionaries tell the Jerusalem leaders about everything that God has done among the Gentiles, James, Jesus' brother, tells him, listen, God's doing an amazing work here in Jerusalem. That word thousands in the original Greek means tens of thousands. Since since Paul was last in Jerusalem meeting with the leaders, tens of thousands of Jews have been saved radically and are now following Jesus. That's also something to celebrate. And they're excited about that. God is at work everywhere among all people. James also says, Listen, we got some trouble. There's trouble brewing here. He he explains that the new Christians, the the Jews that converted to Christ, he says, are zealous for the law. Now that's something interesting for him to say to Paul. Why did James say that? What does that mean? Well, Bible scholar John Polhill writes about this. I just want to read this brief quote for you because he explains it very clearly. Paul's arrival in Jerusalem probably was in the spring of A.D. 56 or 57 during the procuratorship of Felix. Josephus described this period of the mid-50s as a time of intense Jewish nationalism and political unrest. One insurrection after another arose to challenge the Roman overlords, and Felix, the Roman uh, leader, brutally suppressed them all. This only increased the Jewish hatred of Rome and inflamed anti-Gentile sentiments. It was a time when pro-Jewish sentiment was at its height and friendliness to outsiders was viewed askance. Considering public relations, Paul's mission to the Gentiles would not have been well received by everybody. 
The Jerusalem elders were in somewhat of a bind. On, on the one hand, they were excited what God was doing among the Gentiles. On the other hand, they had all these new Jewish converts to Christ who were faithful to the law. And now what's happened is a rumor has started to circulate among the Jewish Christians that Paul is telling people not to live according to the law, to forsake their traditions. The potential conflict is illustrated in verse 21 as Luke describes it. A rumor has arisen that Paul is teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to abandon Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our customs. Where or where, I wonder, would a rumor like this have begun? Let's think back in the book of Acts. As Paul traveled throughout Asia and the Mediterranean, he would go first to the Jews in their synagogue and he would share with them the good news that their Messiah had come. Now what was happening as Paul would travel from city to city, these men called Judaizers were following him. You can read about them in the New Testament book of Galatians. Now what they believed is that, yes, Jesus is our Messiah, that Jesus did come to save us, but to truly be converted to Christ, to be welcomed into the church, you had to be circumcised and follow the Jewish law. So they didn't believe in faith in Christ alone brings salvation, as Jesus taught and Paul taught. They believed it was faith in Jesus plus works. So the whole book of Galatians, Paul is teaching against that. What I think happened here is I think these Judaizers that followed Paul around and caused all kinds of problems for, her, for him, and especially in various cities where he was stoned and beaten and dragged out of town, they were the ones that were in direct, uh, direct kind of the, the insiders of those riots. I think they had come to Jerusalem and they were sharing this fake news with the Jerusalem Christians. Because it turns out that Paul was not teaching those things. There's no evidence in Scripture or extra-biblical writings that Paul taught any of that. What did he teach? He taught that circumcision was not a guarantee of salvation, and that only through faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior brought salvation to us, both Jew and Gentile. He also taught that Gentiles did not need to be circumcised to be part of the Christian church, and that was settled earlier in the book of Acts at the Jerusalem Council. He taught that fulfillment of the law was not our pathway to relationship with God and for salvation, but that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. And when we exercise faith in Jesus, we're reconciled with God. Consequently, our relationship with Jesus transcends the distinction between Jews and Gentiles. We are, in fact, unified through Christ in our one church. There were instances, however, in the book of uh, uh, such as in the book of Acts 19, which describes the Ephesus church, when recent Jewish converts had to leave the synagogue and form their own church because they were being persecuted for sharing the gospel. So they did. In conclusion, what we know is that the rumors circulating about Paul's teaching were patently false. It was fake news. You guys know what that means, right? 
James and the Jerusalem pastors pose this question to Paul. You see, I think they're on Paul's side. They want the Gentiles to be saved. They know that Jesus called all of them to fulfill the Great Commission. But they're pastors of the church in Jerusalem. And so there's a rumor spreading about Paul, which is false. Now they're trying to figure out how are we going to do this? Because here's the potential. Here's what the enemy Satan is trying to do. He's trying to drive a wedge in between the Gentile and the Jewish believers. God wants all of us to be unified. Satan wants us to be divided. And so now they pose the question, what are we supposed to do about this? It's a big deal. Verse 23, here's their answer. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have made a vow. Take these men, purify yourself along with them, and pay for them to get their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that what they were told about you amounts to nothing. But you yourself also be careful about observing the law, or but that you yourself observe the law. So there's four men among the believers who have taken a Nazarite vow. This is a very unique, special vow that Jews would take to separate themselves for God into holiness for a period of time. It was a pretty serious vow. They went without many things. It involved fasting and a number of things to, to separate themselves and to be holy in the presence of God. So there were four men who had done this, and it was now time for them to end the vow. And so what the Jerusalem pastors tell Paul to do is, we want you to join them in, um, in purifying yourself and being part of this vow. We also want you to shave your head, which is a part of the symbol that you're done. We want you to pay for them to have their head shaved and also for all the sacrifices. When a Jew fulfilled the Nazarite vow, he offered several sacrifices, including a male and a female lamb, a ram, and cereal and drink offerings. You can find this in Numbers chapter 6. Four of them would have offered all of those things individually themselves. So what the Jerusalem pastors asked Paul to do is not only to be a part of that vow, but to pay for everything as evidence that he's not teaching against uh, believers um, living in accordance with the law. Now, that, I believe, was a request upon, upon Paul that would have required him to take a step of humility. This isn't just some guy off the street, right? This is the Apostle Paul. He had given his life and oftentimes received beatings for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he had collected an offering for the Jewish believers. He had done all those things for Jesus. And then upon entrance into Jerusalem, uh, the church wants him not only to uh, participate in the Nazarite vow offering, but also to pay for it all. How, how would you have felt if that was a request made for you? I don't know if I would have had the humility and the faith that Paul had to do that, but he did. Paul saw the importance, and Paul was a humble man. They continue, verse 25, With regard to the Gentiles who have believed, we have written a letter containing our decision that they should keep themselves from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from what is strangled, and from sexual immorality. So the, the Gentile believers aren't really the focus of this particular issue in the church. It's Jews who have become believers in Jesus and what Paul is or is not instructing them to do. Verse 26 continues. So the next day, 
Paul took the men, having purified himself along with them, and he entered the temple, announcing the completion of the purification days when the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul submitted to the request of the Jerusalem pastors. Pays for their heads to be shaved, pays for all of those offerings. He was a humble man. Why did Paul express such humility? It was because he saw the importance of unity in the church. Paul surrendered his rights. He surrendered his finances, his resources. He surrendered all those things so that he could be an instrument of peace and unity in the church. You know, when I think of the church and what Jesus commanded us to do, I see a lot of similarity between what Paul had to do and what God wants us to do as believers living today. God desires for his church to live and to exist in unity. There's a lot of passages about this. The question that we have is how, how will we be unified? Well, if we use Paul as our model, which I think is appropriate in this instance, how did Paul ensure that unity was brought through him? How, how did Paul become an instrument of unity in the church? It was his humility, right? He humbled himself and did what the pastors asked him to do. How will we achieve unity in this church? How will we remain unified? By serving and walking together in humility. 1 Peter 3.8 tells us, Finally, all of you, be like-minded and, and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Ephesians 4.3 says, Making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Philippians 2.2 says, Make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Become mature. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace. And the God of love will be at peace with you. Colossians 3.14 says, Above all, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity. Romans 14, 19. So then let us pursue what promises peace and what builds up one another. Finally, 1 Corinthians 1, 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of your Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united, united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Why are there so many passages about unity among believers? Because God wants us to be unified. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 13, 35 said this, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. What is the single greatest way for us to tell and demonstrate to the world that we're Christians? You ever wonder that? What is the single greatest way for us to demonstrate our faith in Jesus? 
Jesus tells us, John chapter 13, verse 35, By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's a command for the church. That's a command for you and I. That's how the world will know that we're believers, that we're Christians. By the way that we love one another. How do we do that? How do we remain unified in the church? How do we love one another? Well, first and foremost, we got to use the guide. God gives us his amazing life book, this guide. It's called the Bible. We use this as our guide for life, as our guide for how to treat one another, as our guide for how to speak, as our guide for how to act, how to live how to relate to God through Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We use the Bible. We collaborate for solutions to conflict. And as Paul demonstrated for us today, we submit to others' needs whenever possible. Now, if we're intent on doing this, on being unified as a church, man, it's going to be so easy, and and we're going to start tomorrow, right? Okay? Probably not. It's probably not going to be easy. One of the reasons it's not easy is because the enemy, Satan, and this world system, and those who follow him, have developed a strategy to divide us. It's an ongoing, very intelligent, very difficult strategy. I want to show you what he did in Paul's life here in verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia, remember that's the Judaizers, saw him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. What's more, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city with him, and they suppose that Paul brought him into the temple. So Paul does exactly what the Jerusalem pastors ask him to do. He does exactly what God commands them to do in fulfillment of the Nazarite vow. And at the end of that, what should have brought unity has now been disrupted by these Judaizers, by these instruments of Satan, as Paul calls them in the New Testament. They enter into the temple and they start yelling and screaming, this, this man and, and, and he's done this and he's said this and they're, they're spreading scurrilous rumors about Paul that are untrue. They're getting the crowd riled up, spreading the fake news and everything they're saying about Paul as they get the crowd worked up into this riot are pretty significant, serious charges. In fact, if Paul had done what they charged him to have done, he would be stoned to death, along with whomever he brought into the temple that didn't belong there. Let's continue, verse 30. The whole city was stirred up. And the people rushed together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were trying to kill him, word went up to the commander of the regiment, that all Jerusalem was in chaos. Taking along soldiers and centurions, he immediately ran down to them. Seeing the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander approached, took him into custody, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. 
He asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. Since he was not able to get reliable information because of the uproar, he ordered, them, ordered him to be taken to the barracks. When Paul got to the steps, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mass of people followed, yelling, get rid of him. As he was about to be brought to the barracks, Paul said to the commander, am I allowed to say something to you? He replied, you know how to speak Greek? Now listen to the fake news that the, the commander had heard. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? Paul said, I'm a Jewish man from Tarsus of Sicilia, a citizen of an important city. Now I ask you, let me speak to the people. After he had been given permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people. When there was a great hush, he addressed them in Aramaic. So Lysias is the commander that Paul's speaking to. He's even got his own set of fake news, that Paul is some kind of assassin that led a revolt against Rome, which also is untrue. Do you see how the enemy Satan is working among various groups of people to cause disunity in the church and to silence Paul's testimony about Jesus? Paul speaks Greek to him and obtains permission to address all of his fellow Jews about Jesus. Now we'll pick the rest of that up next week about what Paul actually says in that testimony. But Paul's beating and his arrest in the temple remind us of three things. I'm going to just say this and I'm going to close. First, the enemy is plotting. So have you heard Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and my call and challenge upon your life to give your life to Christ and, and to start living for Jesus, to use your spiritual gifts, to leave this place and go out those doors and be a testimony for Jesus? If you committed your life to unity in this church, I'm going to tell you one thing. The enemy, Satan, and his followers are plotting against you. As you make that decision, as you surrender your life to follow this challenge, you're going to the tip of the spear. You're going into the enemy's land. And as you stand and proclaim the gospel among your friend, your family, your peers, your co-workers, as you become an instrument of peace in this church, the enemy is going to plot against you. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded and alert. Your adversary, your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for, looking for anyone whom he can devour. And you count as someone to devour. The enemy is plotting against you. But God is victorious. Amen? Amen. You say victorious? Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph had been previously sold into slavery by his brothers. And man, he had, he had a rough road, man. He was sold into slavery. Then his owner's wife spread some fake news about him, which landed him in a prison. While he's in the prison, he ministers to these two guys, and they say, we're going to remember you. They get out of, well, one gets out of prison, one dies. He totally forgets about what Joseph did for him. Joseph's rotting in that prison. Finally, God removes him from there. Joseph finds himself as the second in charge of all of Egypt. His brothers have to come down to him because there's a famine in the land. Finally, they figure out who he is, and they remember what they did to him. Joseph's answer is this. 
You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. The enemy is plotting against you, but God is victorious against anything that the enemy will attempt to do in your life. God is already victorious. And in Romans 8, 28, we learn that everything will work out. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The enemy is plotting against you, but God is victorious, and he's going to bring about that victory in your life through the work that you do by faith in Jesus, your Lord and your Savior. Are you ready to fulfill Luke chapter 9, verse 23? Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the challenge today. We're going to move into a time of invitation now. And there's a challenge that's been laid out on the table for all of us. Am I really going to follow Jesus? And by the way, he's the guide. We don't get to tell the guide where we're going to go, right? He's the guide. That's his job. Jesus tells us where to go. The challenge upon your heart today, I don't know where you are, I don't know what kind of decisions you need to make today. Am I going to follow him? Am I going to deny myself? Is my life about me? Or is it about him? Am I going to take up my cross daily, reading his word, praying, being involved in the fellowship of a church, serving and using my gifts? And will I follow him? I'm going to invite everybody to stand. We're going to move into a time of invitation now. This is a time for you to respond to whatever God has done or is doing in your hearts. If you've not yet received Jesus as Lord and Savior, maybe as you heard the message today, you're like, I want to do that. I want to follow Jesus. Come up here during the time as we sing, and I'll pray with you about that and show you how you can follow him. Maybe you need to surrender to baptism. Or maybe you need to join this church or give yourself over to whatever God's called you to do. Maybe you just need prayer this morning. As the music begins to play, after I pray, come forward and let's work that out together. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray over this time of invitation. We ask that you have your will and your way in our hearts in this moment of decision. We pray that you would do a mighty work in this church. We pray that you would use us in a mighty way, that you would draw the lost to be saved, that you would call us into service, and that we would be obedient to do it. Use this time, we pray, Lord, through your Spirit to help us to make these decisions by faith in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.